I grow with clearer for I'm in the glory land way. Amen. Finishing up our series on new beginnings today, new beginnings, and we've talked about how God sees every new beginning as an opportunity for growth and transformation, and we shouldn't let those moments go without joining God in that desire for us to be growing and being transformed into who He wants us and is calling us to be. We talked about how when you're in a new beginning, if you really want to grow and be transformed in it, the first thing you have to do is cast off anything that's hindering you and is from the last chapter so that you can begin this new chapter. We've talked about keeping faith on, uh, keeping your faith in Jesus and your eyes on Jesus and being aware that God's presence is the reason you can succeed in doing a new thing that might otherwise be frightening to you. We talked about how the greatest new beginning is your second birthday, the day that you put Jesus on in baptism and you come out. And Paul has this idea that who you were before that day and who you are after that day don't look the same. And we don't, we undersell that. We don't uh, talk about that enough, that, that your being in Christ should completely change you from the person who used to be until the person that you are becoming in Jesus. And today what we're going to talk about is how God gives us a new name. How God gives us a new name. And, and there's several examples from Scripture that we're going to look at of people who were given new names. Um, but the text that was read earlier from Revelation chapter 2, and we'll go to it again here in a minute, uh, has this idea that the new name is not just something you receive at the moment of your baptism, but it's for those who hear the word of the Lord and persevere. That, that there's this idea that God has something in store for those who remain faithful, even in a world where it's difficult to remain faithful. And, and I want to talk about that because I think it's important not only that we realize that we're changed from before our baptism to after it, but we're also changed from who we used to be to who we are as a result of our walking with Jesus through a life and a world that can often be difficult and full of temptations. That it is an ongoing transformation and that he's going to give us a new name. When we were waiting to adopt Harper uh, several years ago, um, we didn't know when, when we would get picked. Uh, Harper, my youngest, is, is four now. She uh, is adopted. For those of you who don't know, that's a part of her story that we celebrate. Uh, we celebrate the parents that, that had the courage um, to place her with us and to do that. And we're so grateful for, for what they did. Um, and, and who they are even now uh, as her biological parents. Um, but I wanted to start working on names before we knew who Harper was and when we would meet her. Uh, and so I told Leah, I'm like, we've got to get a list of names. And he's like, I just want to wait until we find out uh, who the parents are and if it's a boy or a girl and, and, and whatever. And I said, okay, uh, you can wait. I'll create a Google list and start sharing it with you electronically for you to revise and give feedback on. And, and so I started making a list of names I liked. Um, and I would send it to her. I'm like, what do you think? She said, I'm not looking at it. Okay. So I made a longer list. And, and, I, and I had some really good names that later would all get rejected. But uh, so I've got this, this, this file. Um, 
And we anticipated that most likely we would get a call from a, a pregnant mom who had chosen us uh, to be Harper's parents forever, uh, and that we would then have some time of preparing and getting to know them and, and doing that. But there's also a set of adoptions that are what they call drop-ins, where you get a phone call. Ours was on February 14th, Valentine's Day, 2015, when the phone rang uh, and they said, um, Leah, your baby girl was born five hours ago and is waiting to meet you. Whoa. So we waited frantically 45 minutes while my in-laws came over to watch our kids while we went the one mile to the hospital, which is a really crazy thing to wait 45 minutes before you can go one mile to meet your new kid. Um, Leah was so excited after learning that, that we had this baby girl and that she was gonna be ours. Uh, she got to the call and goes, wait, wait, one more thing. Oh, she goes, yeah. She goes, is it a boy or a girl? She goes, I already told you it was a girl. Oh, I forgot, I'm so excited. Uh, and that was kind of how that went. So we get to uh, the hospital and we're holding this baby girl and, and we're going, what do we do? And the nurse says, and I loved this, this was so great. The nurse says, I don't know, but one thing you've got to do is come up with a name because you can't leave the hospital without one and you've got 23 hours go. Yes! <laughs> I am prepared! And I said, do you have the list I sent you? <laughs> and she did. Uh, and, and we ended up picking one of the names that I liked, which is really exciting. Um, it wasn't my number one, but it was on the list. <laughs> and so we named Harper, uh, Harper Capri Brown. But she wasn't able to actually take that name legally on that day. We had to wait several months until the adoption was finalized. And, and what is uh, in the adoption world called her gotcha day, where everything was fully and legally completed and, and as we move towards that day, um, and, and Harper uh, has Native American heritage, and so she was considered a high-risk adoption because there were all kinds of obstacles and hurdles that we had to overgo, uh, overcome. But the thing that I was the most excited about for her gotcha day was not the fear being removed of all the potential obstacles that got in the way. I was so ready to have her name legally changed to be the, the name that we'd given her, the name that was our last name, that would be her forever name as part of our forever family. And I was so excited when the judge said that it was all finalized and that she was now fully and legally Harper Brown. She had a new name. She had a new name, and it wasn't just the name. It was everything that was connected to that name. That it, it, it was her identity forever. It was her change to being part of our family forever. And it cemented completely that which we'd been waiting for for so long. And it was such a special thing. And when you think about getting a new name, I think that there's something powerful when God says that he's going to give us a new name. Because it has this idea that you used to be this, but now you're something else. And so we talk about because of amazing grace, I once was, but now I'm, I was blind, but now I see. We're completely changed and, and transformed. You, you can say, I used to be an addict, but now I'm sober. You can say, I used to be miserable, but now I'm content. I used to be broken, I'm whole. I used to be. And it's not that it's done, because some of us can still say, I, I am today still struggling with sin, but I can't wait until the day that all temptation is removed and I'm a saint. We can say that I'm still discouraged and I can't wait 
until the day that I become just completely joyful. I am still even now selfish, but I look forward to the day where I'm just completely grateful and thankful. I used to be, but now I am. I am, and I desire to be yet even more. God creates in us these kinds of transformations, and our God is in the business of new beginnings. And it's an incredible thing. I think if you ever are telling people about Northwest, what I hope you can tell them is you ought to come to my church sometime because we're kind of a church that's in the business of walking with people who are going through new beginnings. We like being involved in this kind of transformation in people's lives. And I want you to see what what the writer John is revealed to him that he shares with the church in Pergamum in Revelation chapter 2 where he promises that God is going to give those who persevere... And those who are faithful, a new name. It's Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. As John's writing this, the book of Revelation is filled with word pictures, and it's not likely that Pergamum is actually the place where Satan has uh, an address. Um, If you try and send, uh, if John, the revelator here, had tried to send a letter to Satan in Pergamum, the postmaster of Pergamum would have probably said, he doesn't actually live here. It's a picture. But the picture is, is painting the reality. And the reality is that Pergamum was a center of emperor worship, Uh, in the ancient world. The Pergamum was a place where people were told to worship a man who was king over Rome and who was a leader over the imperial cult and who was was thought to be divine himself. There's a very popular and widely held belief and practice that that's the kind of thing that you should be doing in Pergamum. And so when the Christians in this early church start saying, we don't worship anyone that isn't God. We worship the creator, not anything that was created. And we believe that any leader, ruler, person, human is created, not creator. We refuse to worship that which is not God. They came under persecution. There even comes a time when Antipas, who is faithful, is killed for his faith for not bowing down to what is commonly believed and held is worthy of worship. And we don't live in a world where the imperial cult still exists in the same way as it did in this world that we read about in Scripture, but we do live in a world where we are called and tempted and just seduced to worship things that aren't God all the time. That is part of our world. And when you think about the things that people worship in our world today, uh, and you kind of think, you know, what are, what are the idols that we have today? You have to ask the question, what do we worship today that isn't God? And if you're trying to figure that out, here's what you need to think. What gets your time and your energy and your attention? Because that's what worshiping is. And if there's something in your life that's getting more of your time and your money and your energy and your attention than God is then you might have an idol problem. If there is something in your life that when it gets violated, you get angry and passionate, that's the thing that is core to you. It tends to be the thing that you worship. 
So if when you watch a political debate, you get more angry than when someone says, I reject Jesus Christ, you might have a worship problem. When you ask yourself, what are the things that I'm willing to die for? Those are the things that are at your core. Those are the things you worship is the things you're willing to give your life for. Antipas said that the thing he wanted to give his time and energy and passion to was Jesus Christ. And the world he lived in said, no, no, no. We give our time and energy and devotion, our worship, to the king, to the Caesar, to the ruler, to the one who is the divine person. He says, I'm not going to do that. They said, then your life will be required of you. He says, fine. But the letter keeps going. He says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And if you're thinking, Balaam and Balak, who are these guys? Uh, well, they're from the Old Testament book of Numbers, which we don't read very often because most of it is really boring. But tucked in it is this really interesting story about Balaam and Balak. And there's a talking donkey, and you've got to read it. We're not going to go into all of it, but it's got good stuff. What you need to know today is that Balak goes to Balaam and says, listen, you're a prophet, you, you have, you're a diviner, you have these powers to do things uh, that are given to you from the gods. I need you to go curse Israel. Balak's a Midianite king. He says, I need you to curse Israel. Balaam says, I, I, I would, but there's a problem. I'm a prophet. I can really only say what God puts in my mouth is what I will speak. And he says, okay, fine, just make sure that what God puts in your mouth is a curse on Israel. And he says, fine, that's what I'll do. And he goes, and as he starts speaking, every time he attempts to curse Israel, a blessing comes out. Because God puts it in his mouth. He attempts to curse, and a blessing comes out. He attempts to curse, and a blessing comes out. Because what's happening is that God is going to protect his people Israel from any kind of spiritual attack that is coming against them. And God continues to do that for us today. But what Revelation is saying to the church in Pergamum is that what happened with Midian and Israel is happening in Pergamum today, and it's happening in the world we live in today, too. And that's why we need to be aware of it. Is while God was protecting them from the curses that this prophet was trying to, ble- to, to proclaim on them, which turned into blessings, while God's doing that, they came up with a different plan. Fine, if we can't use the power of the gods to curse them, we'll just uh, seduce them with immorality. And so the Midianite women went among the Israelite men and seduced them into sexual immorality, into betraying their own marriages and their own covenants and their own people. And they started to do the things that ought not be done by men to women. And they started doing things that were inappropriate in every way. And the Israelite men were complete failures in this. That they were called to be leaders, and they were called to be pure, and they were called to be faithful to God and their marriages, and they weren't. And as a result, they also started worshiping the Midianite gods and the Midianite deities and all of the things that came with that. And it's a huge problem. 
And they end up having a plague as a result of this. And God is trying to redeem his people from doing that which is being done and ought not be done. And so he writes to Pergamum and he says, there's some among you who are doing what happened back then. And this story that's really old all of a sudden becomes immediately significant to them. And I think what he's saying is, listen, Antipas was willing to die because they said that you should worship false gods and you should worship idols and you should worship people. And he wouldn't do that. But some of you were just getting tempted and seduced with immorality. That's what's pulling you away. How can you be buying into this? How can you be getting seduced by this? You have Jesus calling you to so much more and yet you're living in such a little way. So don't do that. And we live in a world today where God is seeking to protect us from all of the spiritual challenges and attacks that are coming against us. And we worry about those all the time while allowing ourselves to live out the immorality of the world around us and being seduced by the little things while God's protecting us from the big things. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one, to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. What a cool thing. What a thing for, for Jesus to say to the church in Pergamum. Listen, I know there's some of you whose lives have been demanded of you because of your faith. And I know there's some of you who are just getting lost in immorality. But here's what I want you to know. To you who are victorious and faithful and persevere and overcome, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you the hidden manna, which is, again, another Old Testament reference. The, the manna is what God gave Israel to eat and sustain them when there wasn't anything to eat in the wilderness. And as they're getting the manna every single day, God gives them enough. Not more than they need, not too little, just enough. Jesus says, to the one who is victorious, I'll give the hidden manna. You'll never lack. You'll always be sustained. You'll always be provided for. You'll always be taken care of. And I'm going to give you a white stone with a new name written on it. Isn't that a cool thing? We got to give Harper a new name. And it changed who she was and who she, who she was. She became part of our forever family. God's going to give you a white stone with a new name. And it's known only to the one who receives it. It's your personal new identity rooted in Christ as a result of your faithfulness in a world that's trying to seduce you and pull you away. Look, if you're victorious, you get this new name. And it's like a secret name that's only known to you and Jesus. That he gives it to you and you kind of go, man, that is so special. And, and there's times in scripture where we have people who receive new names. Abram, also in the Old Testament, receives a new name. Uh, you mostly know him as Abraham. But before he was Abraham, he was Abram. Abram was a herdsman. He traveled around as a nomad. He didn't really have a home. He left the place where he originally was and became a wandering herdsman because God told him to leave where he was and go where he needed to be. And out of faithfulness, he did that. But a nomadic herdsman who was only able to conceive a child through his servant Hagar, struggled always with his wife 
uh, to have a child. One of the things you need to know, if, if you're someone today that is struggling to have kids, uh, you can read the book of Genesis and know that the people of faith have struggled uh, to produce children for many, many years. As long as the Bible's been read and the stories have been told, have been stories of people waiting for children. Abram was one of those people. And it didn't come by the way he wanted. It came through a servant woman. And he had a child with Hagar. But he wanted one with Sarah. He wanted one that would fulfill the promise that he had desired. He was afraid at different times of powerful men as he was wandering around uh, because his wife was very attractive. Sarah was beautiful and he was afraid that uh, some prince or ruler or king in one of the areas he was wandering might say, uh, that man's wife is really beautiful and if she didn't have a husband, I could be one for her. So Abram, who didn't want to be killed so that someone could have his wife, would often say, uh, this is just my sister. Um, yeah, you can go on a date with her. Why not? Because he had a lack of faith as Abram. God, however, was faithful even when Abram was not. Even when he didn't have courage, God provided for him and blessed him. And God eventually helped him to become the person who is famous for his faith. Famous for his faith. Because Abraham, unlike Abram, is famous for his faith that he has to God. Abraham has this covenant with God. And the covenant that God makes with Abraham is this. He says, I will make you a great nation great nation, he can barely have one kid. He says, I'll give you as many descendants as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. He says, I'm going to give you a land that is flowing with milk and honey, the land that even today is known as Israel, the land that today continues to be a place that is fought over, but is fought over by these descendants of Abraham, which are many and plentiful. And God tells him, I'm going to take these people that are going to be of your family and through your family, I'm going to bless every nation of the earth. What we know later is that the way that God is going to bless every nation of the earth through the family of Abraham is that one of his descendants is going to be the boy Jesus who becomes the Messiah who saves us on the cross from our sins and who defeats all of this and does what is promised to Abraham, completely fulfilling all that is promised in this covenant, becoming the, the blessing to all the nations. That stuff happens to Abraham. Abram, the wandering doubter, who was often lacking in the courage that was needed, becomes Abraham, the father of all nations, the one whose son Jesus will save humanity and restore all that God has intended. What's in a name? What's in a name? There's a story of Saul. Saul in the, the book of Acts uh, is a very zealous Jew, uh, a Pharisee in terms of how he interprets the law, which means he believes in the resurrection, and he believes that the Messiah will come if everyone can just live perfectly for a single day. If all the Jews and all of the Israelites can for one day obey the law as perfectly as they possibly can, even more perfectly than seems possible, if that could happen, then Messiah will come and he'll set up a kingdom that will last forever. Saul believes this. And if that's your belief and someone's disobedient, you're mad at them and you're mean to them. And if someone starts teaching false teachings about the law, you want to persecute them and get rid of them because they're in the way of Messiah coming. So Saul is this zealous and passionate law follower, which is good and bad. But the bad is that when there starts to be these Christians who are following Jesus Christ 
And they start saying things like, we believe that Gentiles can come into the community. And they start saying things like, we believe uh, that Jesus was killed by the Jewish leaders and that he was, in fact, the Messiah we've been waiting for. He says, I will not allow you to teach this or preach this. Because if you do this, the Messiah won't come. That's the Pharisaical temptation and idea. And so Saul, out of a desire to be obedient to God, starts persecuting the followers of Jesus. He's there holding the coats of people who are stoning Stephen, one of the early deacons and earliest missionaries of the Christian church. And he's looking on with approval. And he gets permission to even go into other towns and start arresting these followers of the way and throwing them into jail. That's Saul's life. But Paul's life is different. Saul gets a new name. He becomes Paul, and Paul becomes the missionary to the Gentiles. Paul becomes the one who, instead of persecuting Christians, becomes one of the most persecuted of Christians. He's the one that's going everywhere teaching people that the law doesn't mean what they thought that it would mean, and that they aren't waiting for the Messiah to show up. He already did. And the Messiah that showed up was, in fact, this Jesus of Nazareth who died on the cross at the hands of both the Jews and the Romans as a result of God's desire to save all people. And he starts trying to reconcile these churches that are struggling to figure out how to be communities that are diverse in all kinds of different ways. And so Saul, the persecutor, becomes Paul, the persecuted missionary. What's in a new name? What's in a new name? There's Simon, who one day was out fishing, because that was his job. He's out fishing, and Jesus comes along. He says, Simon, why don't you come with me? I want to teach you how to stop fishing for fish and fish for people. I don't know what Simon thought he was getting into when he did it that day because Simon continues to struggle throughout the ministry of Jesus. This is the same Simon whose tendency uh, is to, to react to situations by being ready, shoot, aim, right? Act first, think later. Give answers, then ask questions. Simon. Simon, the one who jumps in with both feet. Simon, the one uh, who walks on water and then sinks in water because he's doing an incredible thing while still lacking in faith. This is the Simon uh, who had a, the audacity to tell Jesus, Jesus, you can't possibly die on a cross. I, I don't care what you think your ministry is, Jesus. I don't care what you think your kingdom is. You're not going to die in Jerusalem. You're going to be made king in Jerusalem. What he didn't know was that his words in that moment echoed the temptation of Satan in the wilderness years before in Jesus' ministry. Jesus knew it, and when he heard it, he said, Get behind me, Satan, to this Simon. The same Simon that when Jesus is arrested, after just the day before promising that there's no circumstance that Simon wouldn't follow Jesus to arrest and death, and anything else. He says, oh, there's nothing that could get me to quit following you. And just a day later, Simon denies Jesus three times because he's afraid of the people that have arrested him. And the third time, it's to a servant girl. He's terrified. He's afraid. That's Simon. But Peter, Peter, the one that Jesus says, Peter, I'm going to give you a new name. And your name is Rock. Oh, yeah. The word Petra uh, in Greek is rock, and the word rock is there because Jesus says to Peter, Peter, on this rock I will build my church. 
And so the Simon who struggles and the Simon who is a fisherman and the Simon who doubts and the Simon who's impulsive becomes the Peter who now is no longer afraid to acknowledge that he knows Jesus, but is the one who stands up at Pentecost and preaches the first sermon that results in thousands being saved and baptized and becoming Christians. And the birth of the Christian movement comes through this Peter. This Peter who is willing to go to incredible lengths to see that some will be saved. The one who even gave his very life because of his ministry for Jesus and his refusal to deny that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. You know, the thing that Simon was famous for, the denials, becomes the thing that Peter dies for, his refusal to deny Jesus. A new name. A new name. And so Jesus tells the church in Pergamum, listen, if you will just reject the, the seduction of the world. If you'll reject the temptation that comes from the world that wants you to fall away and the world that wants to pull you away from being faithful to me, just stay faithful, Pergamum. And I'm going to give you the hidden manna and I'm going to give you this new stone. And when you look at the white stone, it's going to have your new name on it. Because God has a new people for you to be a part of as a Christian. God's calling you not to just be alone in this walk of faith, but to be reoriented into a people who are part of his body. The church is the body of Christ, and when you become part of that with your new name, you become part of this new people. And as part of the new people, you get a new identity and a new family with a new father. It comes with your new name. God has a new identity in store for you. I used to be mine, but now I'm his. I used to be lost, but now I'm found. I used to be a stranger, but now I am God's beloved. I used to be an enemy, but now I am God's adopted child. I used to be a person with an old name, but now I'm one with the new name of Christ. The new name of Jesus. But I don't think that's the name on the stone. Yes, we take on the name of Jesus Christ when we become baptized into him. And we continue to be transformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus. But there's something personal about the stone with your new name on it that's only known to Jesus and to you. And I don't know that you actually get a new name. I think this remains another picture of Revelation. But here's what it means is that Jesus has in store for you a new purpose, a totally transformed calling and life in store for you that he wants you to be different from who you were yesterday and the day before you came to know Jesus and accept him as your Lord and Savior. He wants you to be completely different in who you are, in whose you are, and how you associate with other people. And he has this new relationship that he desires for you to have with him that's just for you. And a new role in the church that is based on your unique gifts that he's given you. And a new role in the world that you bring God to the world and the world to God using the calling and the gifts that he's given to you. Not the same way everyone else does because you have a new name because you have persevered and remained faithful through all things. And that name is known only to you and the one who gave it to you. What's your new name? What's the new purpose? What's the new life? What's the new calling and world that Jesus has in store for you that only you know? Because if you'll just be faithful, he'll give you the hidden manna. He'll give you the stone with your name on it. 
Do you know your new name? Do you know God's purpose for you? And if you know it, are you willing to do what he's calling you to do and to be who he's calling you to be? If you need to respond to the gospel, that God is a God of new beginnings, that your new beginning might be today, and if maybe your first new beginning was some years back, maybe your next beginning begins today, that you cast off all that hinders and so eagerly, easily entangles so that you can run the race that Jesus has set out for you. If you'll just fix your eyes on him and be willing to take one more step with the Jesus who wants to go with you into your new future with your new name. If you need to respond to that gospel today, please do so while we stand and sing. We have heard the joyful sound.